Hi everyone and my name is Nisha Ramjaton and welcome to Do You Mind. Today we are joined by Kieran Shetra and we're going to be talking about clinical psychology and the route into clinical psychology as an ethnic minority. So hi Kieran and welcome. Please can you tell us more about yourself? Hi, um, so I'm Kieran Shetra. I'm a third year trainee clinical psychologist. Um, I'm at the University of Essex. So I'm doing my doctorate in clinical psychology there. And yeah, thank you for inviting me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. So we'll get into it. So the first question. So what is your reason for going into clinical psychology? <laughs> um, well, I suppose, let me just say, I'm a bit nervous. So I want to acknowledge that first. Yeah, um, don't worry. I think... This one's quite a funny one because when I saw this question, I was like, yeah, I know. But I think I actually fell into psychology a little bit. So I think growing up, everyone would kind of say I was quite nosy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, I think I just love hearing people's stories. And I am Sikh. So my cultural background is I'm Punjabi, I'm Sikh. And you know you grow up in quite a collective culture and I had a lot of family around there was lots of different generations so like I just grew up hearing lots of different stories lots of different narratives and yeah it was just really interesting to kind of hear people's different stories how kind of people reacted to different things so I suppose I was a little bit curious I'd like to say yeah. rather than crazy. <laughs> um, and then when I was at school um yeah that curiosity just grew and I think one of the other things that probably is quite important actually and is definitely one of my driving forces is I've got a younger brother who is disabled so okay. he is blind and he's autistic and you know growing up obviously his language he was quite non-verbal and then his language started to grow so actually being a carer like a young carer to someone mm, yeah um, who isn't verbal you learn to communicate in different ways. So yeah. actually, for me, it was kind of like exploring and being curious about different ways that we could communicate with him, support him. Mm -hmm. And then you, that kind of opened up like a whole different kind of like area of life, you know, and kind yeah. of experiences that I might not have experienced if it wasn't for him and kind of, you know, being a carer and being exposed to those different environments. So Mm -hmm. I really think that was kind of my foundation and building yeah. block. And then, if I'm being honest, at school, I didn't even do psychology. I didn't do it at A-level. Really? Okay. I didn't do it at GCC. So I wanted to, but it clashed <laughs> with um, another thing. Yeah, that happened to me as well. Um, I think <laughs> I had classical civilization, and I was like, no, I want to do that more than oh, psychology. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and then it came to uni, and I was like, I'm not really sure what I wanted to do. Like, I like talking to people I always seem to end up being like the agony aunt friend or cousin. <laughs> everyone would come to me and yes yeah, so I was a bit like I'm not sure and then I did teaching actually primary school teaching for one year wow this is crazy <laughs> yeah my mum's my is a senko so she was yeah. like you know I do teaching it'll be great and I did it and don't get me wrong I love all the teachers out there but it just was not for me okay. <laughs> um <laughs> And then I was like, what do I like? And I was like, I like helping people. You know, mm -hmm. I used to help out a lot of my brother's schools, you know, and do a lot of kind of volunteering that way. And I was like, I like helping people. I like listening to stories. 
And then obviously media <laughs> portrays psychology as, you know, you just sit there on a couch and you <laughs> listen to people and a real American version of what psychology <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, I do love that, I can't deny that. <laughs> but yeah, I kind of just emailed my uni and was like, can I transfer to psychology? Wow. And they were like, uh, have you done it before? And I was like, no, not really. But I was like, you know, I had this mind, I think psychiatry and psychology at that point I kind of knew they were similar but I didn't know what the differences were yeah and at that point I kind of got a bit more knowledge and they gave me information well actually you've got to do a medical degree if you want to do psychiatry yeah and you've got to kind of then specialize in and I was like no I don't (laughs) like I'm not doing a medical degree that's not me um and then, yeah, I kind of transferred onto the psychology course, came onto it, quickly realised, like, two of my worst subjects, which were maths and science, and I was like, what oh, have I done? <laughs> um, and the rest is kind of history. Like, yeah. I think after that initial undergrad experience, I was like, actually, this is really what I enjoy. But, yeah, so I kind of fell into it. I stumbled upon it. Oh, wow, that is such a crazy story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, okay, so going into like clinical psychology like I know nowadays um it's very hard to get into there's such a big demand to go into like not even clinical psychology but um I'd say mental health um mm. was it like it's probably like after COVID especially as well but like why do you believe that there's such a big competition to get into clinical psychology like as as a psych um someone who probably did like psychology undergrad and things like that like for those sorts of people like why do you think it's so hard to get in and why there's such a big demand for clinical psychology at the moment obviously with not everyone went the same route as you <laughs> are you thinking more about kind of the doctorate as opposed yeah to yeah that's what I meant yeah, yeah sorry yeah it's you know what it's I think it's really hard Mm-hmm. to say because even when I was applying for the doctorate um yeah. the competition was just ridiculous and I think yeah. coming out of psychology undergrad I do think courses sometimes aren't as honest with kind of students about how difficult the process is actually really um yeah I think at my course they were kind of, they you know they would say oh it's hard you know but there was just it was quite flippantly said and it was kind of like, well, actually anything you want to do in life is quite hard. Like any job <laughs> yeah. you want to do is hard. And they would say, you know, it's hard, there is competition, but I don't think it's really set you up for the reality of it. And, you know, yeah. I think the first time I put my application in for the doctorate, yeah, I think it was maybe like five and a half thousand people. And then the next year it was like 6,000. And as you said, it's kind of increased as like time has gone on. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, and I do think back then, and even not so much now, but I think back then there was a bit of kind of psychology invites quite a lot of curiosity and a bit it's got a yeah. bit of a mystique around it. Back yeah. like, again, like back then I wasn't too sure. There was like this mystique around this profession where you talked for a living. It was like <laughs> It was quite secretive. Yeah. It's like a bit like a secret society, actually. And yeah. unless you're in it and you know someone yeah. or you know someone who's going through it, it is a little bit like you want to pull the curtain back and see what's going on there. Yeah. Um, 
And I think that con- like invites people to kind of be like, well, this is something I could do. Yeah. I think as the years have gone on, post-COVID, post-kind of Brexit, you know, all of like the protests and activism going on, I think a lot more people are really interested in kind of human behaviour. I think people are really motivated to try and make change. You know, we're seeing it in a lot of the protests and the activism that's going on. There is a lot more kind of awareness and kind of information out there. And I think now with the increase of spaces, um, you know, um, that had came about, um, by I always forget HEE. Got what the acronym stands for: Higher Education England. I believe. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, when they increased the space for the doctorate, I think that was like everyone already applying <laughs> knew yeah. how much of a rat race it was and how competitive yeah. it was. And then it was like, oh my god, there's more spaces. So it just had this massive mm-hmm. flurry. Yeah. Of kind of everyone then applying, and the my cynical part of me is like well that's great because we've increased it from that end but actually we haven't changed anything about the process yeah the yeah whole application so you've, you've opened the doors wider but the building and kind of everything else inside is still the same yeah yeah does that make sense yeah completely yeah so yeah I think that's where like it's a bit of a struggle because you're not that like it's a false promise but I think well, the, the change has to be kind of throughout. It can't just be at the beginning because otherwise yeah. then it's clogging up, mm-hmm. you know, all of these spaces and a bit of, like like in mental health services, we have these massive long waiting yeah. lists, don't we? Course, yeah. And it's pretty similar, I think. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, we can increase the spaces, but actually are you doing anything to change the, the application process? And anyone who's applied for the doctorate will kind of tell you it's such a grueling process you know it takes a full year it's like you start applying in you know you start prepping your application probably in the summer for September October and it's all the way until like the following summer yeah yeah Um, yeah so so I don't know if I answered your question but yeah for sure um but what do you think is like you um there's clinical psychology um and there's like counselling psychology, which is relatively similar. Obviously, it can be different in some ways, but there's some similarities like that kind of overlap. But why do you think there's necessarily more of a demand in clinical psychology than like counselling psychology or forensic psychology or other things? I think with clinical, um, and I only can speak from my experience, when I was looking to apply, I think what a lot of the advice I got and a lot of my own kind of interpretation of it talking to people who had kind of done the similar routes was clinical kind of provides you with a lot more scope in a way okay. because if you kind of did a doctorate in forensic psychology or counseling um, not so much counseling I can't say I don't know too much about that that was something I was looking at obviously the cost financial cost of it is yeah. a lot um in comparison obviously the clinical doctorate is funded and I know there are funded cases on counseling and forensic but I think the spaces are even more limited um I I mean don't quote me on that but I'm pretty sure um but also for me I remember first I was looking into the forensic doctorate and it was kind of like well actually I will I be fixed then because I only can work within the forensic yeah okay 
that's where my kind of skills and qualifications will be whereas clinical kind of provides a bit more of a wider umbrella yeah um, where you can kind of dip into different kind of services um so I suppose it provides that flexibility a little yeah. bit more um rather than kind of anchoring yourself to one practice okay. or one yeah. model yeah I never really thought about it like that I always knew there was such a big demand for clinical psychology and I just thought it was because it's funded by the NHS yeah I think also there's something about kind of the hierarchy like even yeah within there's such a big hierarchy right now with there's like psychology hierarchy. Yeah. and even within psychologists you know if you're in a meeting or sometimes you would see people that might you know counseling psychology might be seen as less than clinical psychology or, or forensic and I'm not saying they are but it's there's like a weird kind of like hierarchy within yeah. the psychology professor profession as well which sometimes I don't think you know we want to admit or yeah. we want to kind of be open about and talk about yeah. um but I think unless we address it it's not going to change and I think yeah. that's one of the areas where sometimes I do struggle with psychology mm-hmm. um, profession about how we kind of perceive ourselves in relation to our colleagues you know who might yeah. be from other professions or other kind of domains or models yeah okay um so so based on what we've just talked about um so well not really based on what we've just talked about but within <laughs> clinical psychology um the majority um so I guess on top of what we talked about I mean, within clinical psychology the majority um are white professionals mm-hmm. um because I've, I've heard some t- statistics um about it but I'm not too sure I don't really want to say them just in case I'm wrong um but based on this <laughs> um, but based on this what problems do you think um this has on people suffering with their mental health and or uh, are in need of therapy um mm. and even people um, or mainly people who are you know ethnic minorities mm. um, who are in need of therapy if that makes sense yeah. I mean I probably am a little bit biased on this topic because my thesis and my research is actually exploring the experiences of racialized qualified clinical psychologists. So I'm actually in the midst of writing this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you're right. There is um, a big kind of discrepancy in the profession and yeah. how the profession is made up around ethnic diversity. So I know back in 2018, um, and obviously the stats probably have changed and I'm still kind of going through it, but I think it was like 9.6% um, of uh, qualified clinical psychologists identified from being from a racialized background. Wow. Yeah. Um, wow. Which, if we think about it, in relation to kind of the population that we serve. Yeah. <laughs> and research, I think... Oh, off the top of my head I can't remember but I think it was around like in the 80s or 70s mm-hmm. you know research found that like 80% 70% of people who were accessing mental health services identified from being from a racialized community oh. so if we think about that disparity of kind of the people accessing our services and then the people providing service to the communities I think that really is like huge and I think yeah. that does present as you said um with some issues actually for a lot of our clients that Mm -hmm. we're working with I know um Mind did some research and they did like um a survey back in I think it was 2019 just before the pandemic and it found that like one third of respondents believed that therapy in the UK um 
wasn't fit for people um from um like racialized communities mm-hmm. um and only like 10% of the respondents in that survey found that talking therapy like had adequately considered like their cultural background okay um, which you know I'm not saying that you have to be from a racialized community to work with someone who is like also from a racialized community because that brings its own issues as well a lot of times you know clients might not want to work with someone from a similar background or from any kind of racialized background because that can bring up its own feelings around kind of stigma or shame or kind of lots of different other emotions but I think what we have found is that there is kind of this discrepancy around how clients feel that they can address certain aspects of kind of mental health or how they're considered or discussed even Mm -hmm. within teams. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I worked in quite a few different services. So I've worked in kind of different areas, which some have been really heavily populated um, by racialized communities and some have been really heavily white. And it's just really interesting how I found it, even now as a trainee going into certain placements. So like prior to the doctorate, I was working in East London, you know, it's really mixed diversity there. And then coming into Essex, which is predominantly a white population, you know, I probably can count on one hand how many clients I've seen from racialized backgrounds. Um, And I'm sure, you know, vice versa clients can say that as well. So I think... I've lost my thread there. Why do you think, um, like, why, like, what do you, what, pro- what problems do you think, um, like, come about this kind of discrepancy? Like, the, like what you've just said. Um, mm. So for racialized backgrounds, like, what do you think, um, like, what problems do they encounter because of that? Do, do you think they're, like, not understood? Yeah. Or... Well, I think... I think, so yeah, so I was just, my thread was about representation. (laughs) I got it back. So yeah, Yeah. just thinking about how we are represented in kind of these environments that we go into. So working in a particular environment um, in East London, you know, working on a PQ ward, so psychiatric intensive care ward in mental health hospital, it was predominantly black males that were on that ward, you know, and predominantly, you know, the diagnosis or the way that they might have been discussed, you know, it was around kind of drug-induced psychosis or kind of taking into account how kind of diagnostic labels are addressed to certain communities or, you know, um, perhaps how medication or kind of what interventions are used with certain communities as well or certain demographics of people or cohorts of people. I think that's something that's really prevalent and research has kind of shown that when we look back at statistics about restraint and how commonly restraint is used with certain cohorts um just thinking about kind of I'm just thinking about kind of like sometimes some of the discussions I've had in MDTs you know about are we taking into account like the different socioeconomic backgrounds Mm -hmm. the different intersectionality aspects of a client and that's for all our clients, whether they're from a racialized background yeah. or from a black background. But I think especially thinking about our racialized clients, you know, and if they are in an area where perhaps there is life deprivation, there is other factors, there's cultural, social, spiritual, you know, religious factors mm-hmm. that are playing a part. You know, I think that's something that 
sometimes is not held in mind all the time in particular yeah. services or by clinicians and yeah. I don't think that's just psychologists I think that's across the board yeah for sure. um, and I think obviously you know that then kind of has a negative impact on clients experience with services you know yeah. and that could sometimes attribute to clients not wanting to access services yeah. and then it becomes this vicious cycle where they're kind of then labeled as I hate this term so I'm using like inverted commas but you know like hard to reach yeah communities, hard to yeah. reach groups like are they really hard to reach or are we yeah. just not yeah like adapting our way to approach these clients yeah um, yeah yeah and I, I think I think it's really I think we can't not mention COVID Mm -hmm. You know, you can't not mention just the last few years and the impact that kind of COVID has had on minorities and, and particularly on minority communities. Um, you know, we know that they were impacted, you know, just so monumentally. And that was thinking about kind of just all of those external factors, you know, yeah. that we sometimes don't take into account, you know, the the different socioeconomic backgrounds the different not backgrounds factors that would play a yeah. part um yeah. just thinking about those health disparities I think for clients yeah. for sure um so on top of that I remember um that was really insightful but um on top of that um I remember I did I think it was research I did some research or it was in a lecture and I think there was something about um even not even just um like therapists or clinical psychologists like people like in therapy as such but I remember reading about like psychology itself and um, mm. like CBT for example um, and like psychology like, theories within psychology are quite like westernized and like western based um, like say for example like CBT it's like western based in terms of you're putting the blame onto the people and yeah. you know putting blame into like their thinking and such um, and things like that whereas in um, maybe in India or in Mauritius or wherever like in South Asian cultures mm. you don't base it on thinking like you've been if you've been um, you've you know racialized and you've been ex you've experienced racism it's not necessarily then your thinking that is mm -hmm. the issue that you've actually just dealt with a lot in your life and there's stigma around mental health there's you know what I mean so do you think like yeah. on top of that um like the theories around psychology and mental health and mental health and clinical psychology is also the issue and like what do you think like clinical psychologists and maybe psychologists themselves like can do to help racialized groups you know yeah no <laughs> yeah. that was such a long question no, no I completely agree and I suppose part of me is like oh it's it's such a big it's such a big question and I think it's so true because you're like I remember going to a lecture um, uh, and it was like, mental health research is racist. So what are we going to do about it? That was literally the title. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I was like, brilliant. <laughs> this is fantastic. You know, we're addressing it because I think yeah. psychology really is founded and embedded in white <laughs> middle yeah, class sure. men theories, not even women, that many women. There's a few white class, middle class, upper class women there, but you know, it's pretty much embedded in that. Yeah. And in those models. And as you said, like those models are have been there. And yet as time has gone on, you know, people are talking about um 
I can't even remember the term of it. Was it CBT culture? I oh, know. Uh, race like you, you know it's like a cbt and it's a frame of like being a bit more culturally or racially like no oh, i don't know the term but yeah. this is yeah, i learned about it it shows how much that <laughs> um, which i hope no one from my uh, doctor <laughs> um, but i think even that like the language really yeah. influenced me because i think as you've rightly said the problem is then situated within the individual yeah. but you know it's not around like if you have been racialized and if you have been had racist abuse like targeted to you that is like how can you yeah. say that is something that is you know a problem within you that's an yeah. external yeah. attack on you you know if someone was beaten up you mm -hmm. know or sexually assaulted you know you wouldn't yeah. say that so I think for me some of that frustration then comes from where these models aren't adapted or it becomes a bit tokenistic where, you know, there's so much stuff in the curriculum now around decolonizing the curriculum yeah. and around anti-racism practice and yeah. anti-discrimination practice. And I'm like, these are great initiatives and these are great words, but actually, is that what it is? Is it just words? How are we putting this into action? Yeah. And Unfortunately, when you put these things into action, we can't address anti-racism research. Mm -hmm. We can't address anti-discrimination or, you know, we can't address that without addressing whiteness. And yeah. whiteness is within clinical psychology and that's within research as well as within clinical practice. And, you know, we saw that with the, um, the um, quite the controversial, the BPS conference that was in Liverpool, you know, with that reenactment. You know, and that was something that was so controversial and the BPS came out to kind of apologise for that and we're going to take action and move forward. But that wasn't that long ago. <laughs> that was only a few years ago. And that's something that, you know, I think as a profession, we have a duty of care. We have a responsibility. Yeah, it's about kind of like, I remember in that research lecture, I'm sorry, I'm jumping, but it was saying about... um. Oh, I think I've got it here, saying something about kind of disrupting that alignment of ethnicity and mental health. So, you know, it's not a contributing factor. Um, it is the adversity that impacts on our mental health. Yeah. So if someone has been racially abused, it's not, you know, that adversity that they've had day in and day out, whether it's micro or, you know, mm -hmm. overt aggression, that is something that they're constantly having. And I think... As someone from a racialized background, that starts to impact on your own positioning yeah. and your own identity. So if we think about kind of positioning theory of how individuals use language even to position ourselves. So, you know, I've kept using the word racialized because BAME, <laughs> BME, yeah. what are they? They're just acronyms. Yeah. And actually they're like these huge umbrellas that are used just to kind of I don't know, I suppose just to construct a lot of different diversities and a lot of different people under one umbrella. But you're yeah. doing that, you're kind of diluting all of kind of the unique intricacies of each person within each of those cohorts. But that's just a really easy way for people to kind of lump. Yeah, for sure. One category. Yeah, yeah, completely. I completely agree with that um because I you know I've um only done my undergrad I'm doing my master's now mm -hmm. and I want to go into clinical psychology but 
I, you know, I know that there's so many kind of issues and things that need to be done. And I'm, and I'm just hoping like in five years when I apply, it's all sorted. <laughs> Probably not. Um, yeah. I think that, you know, like even then that like, I've not, I'm, which is very surprising. I've not learned about cultural competency um, in my, like in A-levels, undergrad, masters, anything. I think, you know, I've got um, like an optional module now about decolonizing mental mm. health it's optional <laughs> I think no everyone should have to learn this it's it's yeah. just it's crazy but um and I it, think that's the real fear like it's always added on as an optional yeah yeah and I think the problem and like even within the doctorate and I wish I could say it was something different but I want to give a really honest kind of review of it you know one of my constant kind of like reflections and kind of feedbacks is like we have these great lectures or we have these lectures and then at the end there's like a slide about oh don't forget about intersectionality or don't forget about cultural yeah. stuff and it's an added on tokenistic yeah. tick box yeah. and actually what it should be is embedded throughout it so we should be thinking right from the beginning about the intersectionality yeah. of our clients yeah. you know and how that is impacted in the room when you're working with them not just as a clinician but also for the client yeah and you know, I, I know a lot of doctorate courses. I know a lot of courses are trying to embed that. But for me, I think actually it doesn't even start at undergrad. I think this is a real issue that needs to start like in secondary school. Yeah. In, like, you know, when you're teaching psychology there and mm-hmm. we're talking about actually psychology isn't just for, you know, white middle class <laughs> guys or girls. You know, this is something that is representing. Here are yeah. people from different backgrounds, communities. We need to hear the different voices we need to hear the different kind of narratives so that we can help people in the community. Yeah. But it needs to start right yeah, back then. Because sure. even now, I think it's, you know, it's too late sort of thing because if you've not kind of learned it from the beginning, it's like, it's not like at your core, it's just, it's just an added thing. Like, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, like, we need, to, we need to start thinking about that. But you need to think about that all throughout. But, yeah. um, but anyway, but um, to to conclude and to finish off, uh, <laughs> what, do you, what do you think that, like, you or clinical psychologists or just mental health professionals in general like should start to do or should consider or you know do for racialized groups oh god that's a big question um, <laughs> I just, think, summar- just like a summer like a little yeah, summary, I think, you know? I, like i said i think there are initiatives that are there and i think they're really good that they are trying to kind of have these conversations these difficult uncomfortable conversations I think, like I've just said, I think it really should start kind of earlier on in secondary school. I think it would be so useful to have people from different racialized backgrounds who are psychologists going into schools, doing talks, going into undergrad courses, doing a bit of like career talks or just, you know, just being really open and honest about kind of the process and the journey. I think these initiatives around the curriculum is really helpful. And, you know, I attend a lot of groups at the uni as well as externally. And it's finding your allies. It's finding those places where you can have these discussions, whether that's through a mentor. So I know there's a lot of kind of aspiring psychologist groups where there's mentorships, particularly for um, people from racialized backgrounds. Um, And I know there's a lot more job adverts coming out around that as well, but I think it's trying to enforce that in a way that feels genuine and it doesn't feel TikTok and performative. Yeah, yeah. Because it's a really fine line of kind of wanting that change, but also not wanting it to be performative and like fake, let's Mm -hmm. be honest. Um, So I 
I, I, I don't think there's one thing that we can be yeah, done, but sure, I think yeah. things like this are really great. Having platforms, whether it's for a podcast, whether it's through kind of social media groups or however you find these groups, I think having the conversation in platforms where it does feel like a comfortable, safe environment and there are representations is really important. Um, so yeah, well, it's not yeah. really a clear answer, but yeah, no, it's, there's going to be tons of things. Yeah, but um, I think what I'd like to say, um, uh, I think one thing that I remember that really stuck with me from my undergrad was um, I remember a lecturer came in, like a clinical psychologist, and she just said, you know, it's it's the she gave a talk about what we're talking about essentially, and um, it really opened my eyes, and I know it didn't open many other people's eyes, but but I remember I, like it stuck with me like forever, um. But I remember the one thing she said is it's not enough to not be racist as a clinical psychologist or a mental health professional. You have to be anti-racist. And that means like questioning um, like the theories and questioning, you know, what we've just talked about and, you know, thinking, is this is this enough for racialized groups? Like, yeah, this might be all right for, um, I don't know, like patients who are, who are white um, or something. But like racialized group, is it, is it enough for people who have experienced racism? Because mm-hmm. um, you can't just tell them, oh, like, just don't think like that, like, change your negative no. thinking. But um, no. that's what... That's but I, I suppose, and I'm really glad to hear that, and I, I suppose one thing I just want to add is, like, just coming in, and I think it's really good to be open and transparent, you've also got to be prepared that there's going to be people that you meet in this journey, clinicians, colleagues, peers, that don't want to have those conversations, and they don't want to be anti actively anti-racist because it's uncomfortable, because when yeah. you have been position of power or privilege whether you acknowledge that power or privilege and you might not even think that you have that privilege it's really difficult to kind of then see well actually why would I want to give up the little bit of power or privilege I've got and that sometimes can be really uncomfortable when you're having those discussions with peers or colleagues because they're the ones that you would expect to be like no we're all in this fight together (laughs) you know and I think that's something that is where a lot of work needs to be done within the profession amongst ourselves not just outwardly towards clients yeah Um, because if we can do that with one another then that would hopefully then obviously filter down to the way that we you know work with our clients yeah for sure yeah anyway thank you so much for coming on and having this like important talk that's clearly not talked about enough um but yeah, anyway, thank you so much. Um, so this has been Do You Mind? My name is Nisha Ramshan and thank you, everyone. Thank you. Bye.